Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 3.37, Niagara and Crown Point. 1758 had been a watershed moment in the North American war effort during the French and Indian War. William Pitt's plans to send over a massive army and allow for substantial subsidies to flow into the colonies had, by all accounts, worked well. Sure, there had been some stumbles, like at Fort Corralin, and yeah, Lewisburg took longer than expected. But even those missteps really could not take away from the fact that 1758 had been game-changing. The British had gained control over the entrance to the St. Lawrence to the north, and had a clear path to Lake Erie in the south. The scope of the war had likewise changed by this point as well. By the end of 1758, the tenuous French hold over the Ohio country had collapsed. Beginning in 1759, British eyes were no longer focused on preventing French incursion into their territory. Rather, the focus was on the Canadian heartland itself. The British looked forward towards the campaigns of 1759 with one goal in mind. They wanted to bring the French in Canada to their knees. When 1758 ended, William Pitt was already well underway in making plans for his 1759 campaign. The first major change came in an overhauling of leadership. As we previously discussed, Abercrombie was out, with Amherst replacing him as the overall commander of the war effort. James Wolfe, who we last saw back in episode 3.34 on Lewisburg, would become second in command. The plan was that Amherst was going to return to the South, collect the remainders of the army that Abercrombie had the year before, and proceed north through the Champlain Valley and Lake Ontario to the St. Lawrence River. Wolfe would take the army in Lewisburg, some 12,000 strong, and make his way up the river to Quebec where he would coordinate with Amherst for the assault on the city itself. The British would also entrust Rear Admiral Philip Durrell with blockading the Gulf of St. Lawrence to prevent the French from making increasingly critical resupply missions. This portion of the mission did not end up going great. Although he had a considerable fleet at his disposal, ICE had prevented Durrell from getting in place until May 5th, at which point most French supplies had already made it through. Pitt also tasked an optional side expedition as well, one that was at the ultimate discretion of Amherst, and one that Amherst would end up allowing, against Fort Niagara. Pitt expected that the colonies would provide substantial manpower. The plan was the Crown would pay for all the funding for supplies, while the colonies were going to have to foot the bill for the men themselves. However, Pitt, knowing that money had a way of speaking, did make some vague promises of reimbursement for their troubles. This was enough to ensure that the colonies provided a large number of provincial troops. We are going to begin today with the British advance on Niagara, that optional side mission. We will then double back afterwards and look at the mission against Crown Point. While the British sat in control over the Ohio country, their hold on the region was anything but secure there was real concern that the French were going to be making a comeback attempt, which would throw the tenuous hold over the region into jeopardy. Although the British had made a great deal of progress in securing Indian alliances and neutrality throughout the Ohio, it was not that much of a leap to say that if the French came back in and started winning, 
Those tribes that had abandoned their French alliances would quickly partner back up with the French, and again the Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia frontiers would be under attack. Moreover, with the French out of the Ohio country, Canada itself became far more vulnerable to attack. The next phase of the war was going to be exclusively on their soil, unless they could force their way back into the south. Fort Niagara was a critical French holding. First, its existence meant that the French continued to have influence, if not outright control, over Lake Ontario. The fort also stood largely as a stepping stone for the French to move back into the Ohio. Should Niagara fall, it would fatally weaken French supply lines and would likely pour cold water all over any French ambition to regain their hold on the interior of North America. None of this is new news for the British. We talked previously, going all the way back to when Braddock was planning to attack Fort Duquesne, that he had been strongly encouraged to go towards Niagara instead. It was a French choke point and, if the British could capture it, it would sever their supply lines to the south. The job of taking Niagara fell to Colonel John Prudeau, who was to move north to Oswego and then move quickly on Niagara itself. At the same time that all of this is going on, the Iroquois were making their own determinations about what their future held. The Confederacy was in an undeniably tense spot moving into 1759. Yeah, they had come through Easton, nominally in control of the Ohio country. However, it was hard to miss the fact that they had given a degree of their sovereignty to the Ohio tribes that they were uncomfortable with. What the Iroquois now feared is that when the war ended, the Delaware and other Ohio tribes would end up forming their own confederacy. This was a terrifying thought to the Iroquois, who were determined to maintain at least a nominal level of hegemony over the region. The Iroquois decided that the best way to maintain that influence was to hitch their wagon to the British. Following Easton, what had emerged was not as much alliances with the British, but was rather neutrality. Now, however, the Iroquois were interested in more than just neutrality. They were seeking active participation with the British. So, why the about-face? Although it was unexpected, the Iroquois were likely banking on the idea that having a closer alliance with the British would prove beneficial for both parties in the Ohio country, especially as it concerned the all-important question of trade. If the British and the Iroquois had a valuable trade agreement in the area, the British would be more likely to want to protect their own financial interests, and thus would have a vested interest in the Iroquois maintaining their position in the Ohio country. At the moment, this agreement made the most sense for the Iroquois, as they shifted from neutrality to an active alliance with the British. With marching orders in hand, Prideau departed late in June 1759, with his unexpected Iroquois allies. Well, the plan under Pitt had called for the British to re-establish the destroyed fort at Oswego. Prideau had no intentions of repeating the mistakes of William Shirley and getting himself pinned down. Upon arriving at Oswego, he sent 1,000 men to take up the job of rebuilding the fort, with a mixture of 3,000 provincials, regulars, and Iroquois warriors who just kept on moving towards Niagara. As the British made their way in boats across Lake Ontario, the French appeared to have been completely unaware that anything at all was going on. Fort Niagara was a formidable obstacle, to be sure, 
It featured strong walls, extensive earthworks, and had a capable European commander in Captain Pierre Pouchot. Throughout so much of this series on the French and Indian War, we have discussed the mistakes of the British. Now, however, it is our turn to discuss how the French and Pouchot were about to make a series of serious mistakes and miscalculations of their own. The French did not enter 1759 with plans to fight a completely defensive war. They, too, had made plans for an offensive campaign, with their sights falling onto regaining the recently lost Ohio country. Should the French reclaim their control over the Ohio, they could open up and resume attacks along the frontiers of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia, forcing the British to waste precious resources defending their once again vulnerable frontiers. Pichot, in preparation for that expedition, had sent 2,500 of his 3,000 men to Fort Michaud in northern Pennsylvania, some 60 miles to the south of Lake Erie, to prepare for that summer's assault. Pichot was, of course, not insensible to the fact that Fort Niagara might be a target. However, the logical time for the British to attack had come and gone. Back in the spring, Pichot and a large number of his men were up in Montreal, leaving Niagara weakly garrisoned. If the British were going to make a move, that was the time. Furthermore, Pichot had a close relationship with the Iroquois, and specifically with the Senecas. Pichot fully expected that should the British cross through Iroquois-held territory, he would get a heads up. As he had received no warnings and really the ample time for an attack had come and gone, Pichot figured that Niagara was safe and that he could afford to send the vast majority of his men to the south. So, you can just imagine the look on Pichot's face when he and his garrison of just about 500 witnessed some 3,000 British arriving. Unsurprisingly, the first thing that Pichot did was send a messenger racing to the south to Fort Michaud to let them know that Niagara really needed those 2,500 men back and basically anybody else who could come help. By the time that July 11th rolled around, the British had gotten close enough to begin firing upon the fort. The men quickly got to work, going through all the necessary steps for a siege. While they were busy pounding the walls with cannon fire, they dug new trenches moving closer and closer to their target. Now, of interest, the Senecas seemed to be surprised, not only by the attack, but by the Iroquois participation. The Niagara Senecas had been pretty closely allied with the French and really did not seem that eager to turn around and start shooting them. The Senecas, under the command of Kaendia, approached the Iroquois and made an impassioned plea. What would follow was both sides trying to get the other to jump ship. Kaendia made some persuasive arguments that they probably should just tap out and let the Europeans kill each other. As it would turn out, both sides were at least partially successful. Although the Iroquois refused to leave, following the end of their meeting with Kiandia, they had little role in the remainder of the siege, acting more as spectators as opposed to actual participants. Unnerved and not exactly clear who the Senecas were now fighting for, it was Pichot himself who decided that the time had come for them to go. He allowed them to evacuate from the fort, something which they were more than happy to take the French up on. The Siege of Niagara was really just a race against the clock. Pouchot had little that he could do, other than sit and try not to die while he waited on a relief force. 
The British trenches were now just some 80 yards from the fort, as they continued to blast away. Although things seemed to be going pretty well for Prudhoe, he himself probably should not start to celebrate just yet. During a routine battery tour in the early evening hours of July 20th, Prideau made the unfortunate mistake of stepping directly in front of a mortar, which promptly blew his head off, killing him on the spot. With Prideau dead, our old friend William Johnson was thrust into the commanding role, where he was hoping to wrap up the siege and quickly capture the increasingly beleaguered fort. Although the French were significantly outnumbered, Niagara was in a defensible position, and Pouchot could indeed hold out for a while, while hoping desperately that the relief force that he needed would come. By July 23rd, the fort was all but completely defenseless. The British now were within range to use their muskets against the French defenders. They had knocked out all the French guns, leaving the French just holding out in what seemed like a pointless battle. However, much to the considerable relief of Pouchot, help arrived in the form of French regulars and their Indian allies. Depending on where I am reading it, the numbers of this party seem to have ranged somewhere between 1,200 and 2,000 men. Unfortunately for the French, the British too had become aware of the rescue party, and quickly moved into position to greet them. The site chosen for the stand was a location roughly two miles south of the fort, at a small farm called Les Belles de Famille in modern-day Youngstown, New York. The British quickly got to work blocking the road and constructing a log breastwork for cover, as well as an abatis in front of it to slow down French progress. At the same time, several hundred Iroquois warriors took up positions in the trees for the coming ambush. Johnson sent Iroquois emissaries down to meet with the French allied tribes to let them know that they were really not in for a good time. Apparently, they agreed, and just like that, the French-allied Indians decided that it would probably be best to just sit this one out. This had the effect of reducing the French force down to around 600, as they approached the British position. If the pending ambush has invoked memories of Braddock's march along the banks of the Monongahela for you, what would happen next takes a page out of the Battle of Fort Corellin. The French bravely charged the British position and predictably got all tangled up and the abatis. The British then went to work firing volley after volley at the now-stuck French. When it became obvious to the French that this was not going well, the men broke and fled. The Iroquois, who, recall, were waiting in the trees, quickly gave chase, capturing those whom they could and killing others. While the French only had 600 men who actually walked into Johnson's trap at Les Belles the British had just scored an unquestionably decisive victory. The French would peg their losses at 344 men captured or killed, though it is probably a fair guess that the French may have been downplaying their losses. With their defeat at Les Belles-Familles, Pichot realized that there was no point in further resistance and promptly surrendered. On July 25th, the battle was officially over. The French were taken into British custody and sent to New York. From there, several would be sent back to France. Per Johnson's agreement with the Iroquois, they could head on into Fort Niagara and plunder away. William Johnson, not wanting to waste his momentum, had originally planned to move quickly on Fort Toronto in order to gain control over the entire western portion of Lake Ontario. 
However, Johnson learned on July 30th from his reconnaissance team that no such mission was going to be necessary. The French had abandoned and burnt the fort to the ground without a fight. Losing Fort Niagara was a huge blow for the French. Montcalm, looking at the situation, quickly understood how much danger the interior of Canada was now facing, and realized that Quebec itself was looking pretty vulnerable. The French response was to reassign as many men as possible to Quebec in order to defend the capital. In light of these reassignments, the French had to move men from the south up towards Quebec, ending any hope for an offensive campaign to regain control over the Ohio. The fall of Niagara had poured cold water on those plans. The French would indeed never make an attempt to reestablish their position in the Ohio, as the order of the day became preparing for a coming British invasion of Canada. Much as with Fort Niagara, Crown Point had long been a target for the British. Originally, the job of securing Crown Point fell to William Johnson. However, as we are all now very well aware, he got stuck down along the southern banks of Lake George. Johnson built Fort William Henry with the French building Fort Corralin to match them. By the time that we reached 1759, Fort William Henry had been destroyed, something we discussed in episode 3.31. And despite all British attempts to the contrary, Fort Corralin was still proving to be an annoying obstacle. The last time that we were at Fort Corralin was back in episode 3.33 when James Abercrombie and his large army were sent fleeing back to the ruins of Fort William Henry by a much smaller French force. This defeat at the hands of Montcalm and the defenders at Fort Corralin ended any hope for the British to launch an attack on Quebec during 1758. The original plan had been that Amherst would take Louisbourg, and hence the northern portion of the St. Lawrence River, with Abercrombie getting control over the southern portion of the river. The two sides would then converge in Quebec. Going into 1759, the plan remained the same, meaning that it is once again time for the British to take their shot against Fort Corralin. Amherst had spent a considerable amount of time improving roads on the path to Fort William Henry, which he had rebuilt and renamed to Fort George. He took these actions towards improving the roads, leading to the fort in order to ensure that supply lines would be maintained for the coming campaign. Amherst had zero intention of following in the footsteps of Abercrombie. He likewise took the time to make sure that the men were properly trained for what lie ahead. Concepts such as military discipline remained important. However, Amherst went a step further and made sure that they were all aware of tactics for fighting in heavily wooded areas. It was not until July 21st that Amherst and his army of between 10,000 and 11,000 men, including just over 6,000 regulars, made their way up Lake George towards Corralin. And just so we can keep our timeline straight, this is right around the same time that the British are blasting Fort Niagara to bits, just a few days before that encounter at Les Belles Famille. Amherst had reason to worry. He was obviously acutely aware of what had occurred the year before. To add to his stress, he was working with an army that was 6,000 men smaller than what Abercrombie had had the previous year, an army that had been sent running by the French. This was something that must have weighed heavily on his mind as he made his way up Lake George towards his target. 
The trip up Lake George saw the British moving in four parallel columns, following a relatively uneventful landing on July 22nd. Amherst was able to get his men ashore and prepared for the final approach towards Corailin. However, there was to be no heroic defense of Fort Corailin this time. Amherst's army was only ever challenged by small batches of men and engaged in only some light skirmishing. There was never anything resembling the defense of the fort that we had seen the year before, and quickly it became obvious that everybody had pretty much packed up and left. It was assumed in the moment that they had retreated north to Crown Point. The following day, Amherst made it to the actual main French line. However, they did not intend to fight, as the lines were simply there to protect the remnants of the French withdrawal. Upon making contact with the British, the French lines quickly retreated. Now, the French could not exactly bail out of the place without doing anything, and sure enough, they started firing their cannons on the British positions. At this point, there was no real hope for Fort Corailin. Everybody knew that it was going to fall. The job of the remaining garrison was to slow the British down. Indeed, for the next three days, everybody went through the motions. The French kept firing on British positions. The British lugged up their own artillery pieces and started digging trenches. After a few days of everybody preparing for a siege, the French simply stopped firing. A French deserter managed to make his way into the British camp, where he informed them that the French were in the active process of abandoning the fort. The French spent their final few hours destroying the guns, and then announced their official exit by blowing up the powder magazine, promptly decimating the fort that had been a thorn in the side of the British for so long now. Before we move on, I want to make a few quick notes here that will hopefully help make everything make more sense as we wrap up today and move into the next episode. First, and critically, James Wolfe was not just sitting around, hanging out in Lewisburg while all of this was going on. On June 4th, he had left Lewisburg and was landing just outside of Quebec on June 28th. Now, don't worry too much about the specifics of that right now, because during our next episode, the only thing we are going to be discussing is Quebec. What I do want you to know is that by the time Corailin and Niagara fall, Wolfe is actively engaging near Quebec itself. Second, the name of the game by this point for the French had become to delay as much as possible and just have the French in Canada get through the year still standing. There was hope amongst the French that a peace may not be that far off, hopefully coming in 1760. They understood the critical importance of not being forced out of Canada altogether before that peace came. Therefore, the mission had become holding out long enough to get through the end of 1759 and then hope for a peace agreement to be reached. While Corailin was still smoldering, Amherst sent a party forward to conduct some reconnaissance on Crown Point and the accompanying Fort St. Frederick. In the minds of everybody, this is going to be where the showdown between the British and the French was going to occur. It was the target that the British had their eyes on for years. The previous year, the plan was to get past Corailin and take up the real prize at Crown Point. The defeat of Fort St. Frederick would open up the path to the southern part of the St. Lawrence, and critically would allow Amherst to link up with Wolfe. Except, there would be no great battle at Crown Point for control of Fort St. Frederick either. 
rather than bringing Amherst news of troop numbers and formations. The team that had been sent to scope out the situation returned with news that the fort had been abandoned and that the French were withdrawn along the Richelieu River. The French retreated all the way back to the small island of Ilanois. Located at the entrance to the river, the French hoped that their position would allow them to block British access. With the British in control of Crown Point and Ticonderoga, the Hudson River Valley was safe. When you add in the victory at Niagara, British holdings in North America were now safe. The French had lost their influence in the Ohio Valley, and with them rapidly retreating, the war had shifted to an exclusively defensive posture. Losing these forts ended any hope that the French could launch a meaningful offensive campaign against any British holdings. With the British now in control over Lake Champlain, the French heartland itself was badly exposed. The question therefore becomes one of why was it so easy in 1759? Just a year before, Montcalm had repelled an army of 16,000 under Abercrombie, with a force of just about 3,500. Why didn't the French make more of an effort to defend these critical forts in 1759? Well, the French scored a huge victory in 1758 at Fort Corralin. Montcalm was almost certainly aware that a repeat of that success was not in the cards. Stupid mistakes had cost the British dearly, and they were unlikely to make them again. Remember that it had surprised the French that another attack was not launched. The British still held a massive manpower advantage, even after Abercrombie's men got tangled up in that abatisse. Had the British taken a day to regroup and then returned with their artillery in tow, the outcome likely would have been dramatically different. Of course, they did not do that. However, Fort Montcalm, he knew well that such a fortunate break was unlikely to happen twice. Second, recall a moment ago that I mentioned that the French hoped that 1760 would bring peace. It was imperative for the French that they maintain at least some control over Canada. If they lost both Quebec and Montreal, they would be at very serious risk of losing Canada forever. For Montcalm, the mission really had shifted by this point. The British had the clear advantage, something that they had had since the previous year. Right now, all the French could really do was hold out and fight another day, hoping that peace would break out and that the French would still have some meaningful claim to Canada. Therefore, holding individual forts like Corralin or Crown Point mattered significantly less. The French could afford to lose those forts. They were not going to win the war in North America. All they could do was try to control how badly they lost it. What the French could not afford to lose was Quebec. By avoiding senseless losses in battles that they would never win, the French could instead concentrate their forces in key locations that simply could not be lost. For the French, believing that maintaining a foothold in Canada would be enough had backing to it. Back during King George's War, when the New Englanders had triumphantly captured Louisbourg, the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle had returned everybody to the status quo antebellum. It seemed entirely possible to the French that real victories lie over in Europe, and that, as had previously been the case, a concession of the treaty would be restoring French possessions in North America. 
This outcome, however, was going to be a whole lot more unlikely if the British could manage to evict the French completely from Canada. Amherst, for his part, was skeptical about everything that had gone on along Lake Champlain. He remained convinced that he was running into a trap. As a result, Amherst would proceed far more deliberately and, much to the annoyance of our friend Wolf up in Quebec, slowly than one might have expected. Rather than pushing his advantage, Amherst spent significant time securing his holdings along Lake George and Lake Champlain. He left nearly a thousand men in charge of building a new fort where Fort Carillon had once stood, as construction on Fort Ticonderoga began. It would not be until October 11th that Amherst finally felt that the time was right to move against ile Unois. However, by that time, the situation had changed entirely. Next time, we are going to look at exactly how the situation had changed entirely. As the events we discussed this week were occurring, James Wolfe and his men were engaged in a far more fierce battle to the north in Quebec. When we return, we are going to look at just how that battle for Quebec would play out, and how that battle would influence the greater overall war in North America. Keep thinking about any questions that you have for our upcoming Q&A episode and send whatever you've got my way. Until next time, I hope that you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as we examine the Battle of Quebec.